Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is the mini-series on the spiritual crisis of our time. One of our themes so far has been to examine the relation of the state to religion. We continue this today by considering modern China, with a focus on Taoism, which is one of its indigenous religions. What happens in this country is of immense importance, not only for its population size, but also because of its growing importance. We shall proceed this by examining the impact of the secret of the golden flower and its influence upon Carl Jung and his school of analytical psychology. For those who wish to learn more of this unusual and remarkable text, there are two prior podcasts on this subject, season one, episodes 22 and 23. The Secret of the Golden Flower is a meditation text that at first glance describes, in poetic language, a technique of sitting, breathing and contemplation. Sitting primarily relates to a straight posture. Breathing, or the energy path of the breath, is the internal wheel, which is vertically aligned with the spine. When breathing is steady, the wheel turns forward with breath energy rising in the back of the body and descending at the front. Bad breathing habits may inhibit the circulation of essential breath energy and cause the wheel not to turn. Contemplation involves watching thoughts as they arise and recede. Yet it has so much more than meditation advice. The normal forward-flowing movement of qi, or vital energy, is often dissipated in worry, work, sexuality and reproduction. It flows forward or outward into the world and the spirit is not nurtured. This results in death. Instead, the secret of the golden flower teaches a backward-flowing movement by which the chi, vital energy and spirit is nurtured. This results in life. After a period, there is a solidification or crystallization of the light in the spirit body. The text says, only after 100 days of consistent work is the light genuine. Only then can one begin to work with the spirit fire. In the first stage, there is a gathering of the light. In the second, an emergence of meditative consciousness. In the third, a meditative awareness that exists even in ordinary life. In the fourth, there is a higher meditative perception, the centre in its conditions. Richard Wilhelm, the German missionary who found the book in China in the 1920s, said in his introduction that the followers of this method practised a form of yoga and meditation and that almost without exception they had the central experience of the golden flower, that is, of spiritual illumination. So why should this have been of such interest to Jung and later to his school of analytical psychology? After all, Jung was not a practitioner of yoga or meditation. Jung had an extraordinary capacity to become invested in arcane religions, esoteric books, cults, religions of the past, myths of ancient societies and apparently lost causes, such as those of Gnosticism, Taoism and alchemy. He let them enter into his unconscious, for example his dream world. Then he struggled with their archetypal material. 
he would wrestle with their mystery until he could understand them, with the psychological tools he had created, after which he could reinterpret them into the present, allowing them to be reborn. What he saw in Gnosticism, Taoism and Alchemy was the repressed, rejected, despised and persecuted soul with which he identified. Western civilization had also lost its soul, like Jung himself. Such was the force of his understanding and the magic of his interpretations that thousands of Jungian and transpersonal analysts have subsequently been inspired to follow his example. Yet, even without Jung's input in these areas, there has been, in modern times, growing fascination with the ancient wisdom of the Orient. Jung felt an enormous need to anchor his emerging psychological insights in the traditions of human culture. After all, if his theories had truth, they must be archetypal. So where could he find the archetypal parallels to what was emerging from deep within him? and in his writings. We know that, although Gnosticism fascinated Jung, he had no access to original texts. But the secret of the golden flower came to him like a gift from heaven, actually from the depths of the Taoist traditions of China. Moreover, it was already translated into German by his friend Richard Wilhelm. What was most impressive were not the meditation techniques, which outwardly were the main point of the book. Neither was it the yoga. Jung was fascinated by numerous links with his analytical psychology and the transformation of the psyche, which is at the heart of the practice. Here are some examples of the links between Taoist philosophy, especially as represented in The Secret of the Golden Flower, and Jungian psychology. The distractions and obsessions mentioned in the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower, which block the progress of meditation, are similar to the complexes and disassociations identified by Jung in his research. Releasing oneself from one's social pretensions and duties is similar to the giving up of the persona. The relinquishing of consciousness and control for the Taoist the action of inaction, is for the Western depth psychologist the inner release from cognitive left-brain mastery. The importance of the feminine in both traditions. This means a closer link to the deep psyche, the unconscious, nature, a participative interconnectedness of all things, rather than the effort to establish mastery and control. The Taoist emphasis on going with the flow. In Jung's theory of psychological types, this would mean the ability to allow greater perception as opposed to the structure function. In all depth psychotherapy, a loosening process is very beneficial to the inner journey and an intuitive, feeling-orientated, imaginative, creative capacity which is freed from the control of the logical and rational mind. This is identical to Taoism. The circulation of the light, so often mentioned in The Secret of the Golden Flower, reminded Jung of the circular rather than the linear path to the centre. This is similar to the path to the higher self in transpersonal psychotherapy. 
Young comments, thus the circular movement has also the moral significance of activating all the light and dark forces of human nature, and with them all the psychological opposites of whatever kind they may be. That means nothing else than self-knowledge by means of self-incubation. The references to the darker side of one's nature are described in the text as the slag of darkness, which is met by the light. This is close to Jung's conception of the shadow and its meeting with consciousness. The Taoist belief that an illuminative state was achievable would find its equivalent in Jung's concept of the experience of the self. Numerous references to the mandala symbol in the text are resonant with Jung's growing fascination with the mandala symbol of the self in his research. The use of poetic metaphors and esoteric images and concepts in The Secret of the Golden Flower are closely linked to Jung's idea of symbols and how the essence of the process, the chi, the tao or the self, was ultimately ineffable and could only be expressed in symbols. In the beautiful metaphors of the Taoists, Jung could feel their central illuminative experience. The golden flower is referred to as the light of heaven, which is the Tao. The germinal vesicle is the dragon castle on the floor of the sea. Other references are to the heavenly heart, the terrace of life, the purple hall of the city of jade, the dark pass, the space of former heaven. Next, the union of opposites is central to Taoism and Jungian psychology. Notice how inspired Jung is with the oriental metaphysical ideas which parallel his own work. Quote, the union of these two, life and consciousness, is Tao, whose symbol would be the central white light, compared with the Bardo Todol, and the dwelling place of the light is the quadrant, that is the space between the eyes compare with the sixth chakra in Hindu mythology. By means of these symbols, it is intended to make visible the creative point, or that which has intensity without extension. The space of the square inch, which has extension, yet contains the limitless light. The two together, says Jung, make Tao. Essence or consciousness, his sing, the Chinese concept, is expressed in light symbolism and is therefore intensity, while life, Ming, the Chinese concept, would coincide with extension. The first has the character of the Yang principle, the latter of the Yin. Unquote. Next, Taoists believe in the intuitive process rather than the intellect, again very similar to adept psychology. Richard Wilhelm suggested that references to his sing and ming, that is essence and life, on the one hand, and hung and po, which is like masculine and feminine, on the other, were the equivalent of Jung's concept of animus and anima. However, Jung, surprisingly, preferred a translation of logos and eros rather than animus and anima. Commenting on the text, Jung writes, In the phenomenal world, 
mankind develops as a multiplicity of individuals, each with a central life principle, a monad, which at birth splits into the complementary opposites of hissing, that is human nature or logos, and ming, which is life or eros. Both principles transcend any individual. Unquote. So in Jungian terminology, these are archetypes. He continues, A related pair of opposites in our phenomenal and corporeal existence is Hun, a Yang principle, masculine, and Po, a Yin principle, feminine. On death, the Po, connected to the body, sinks into the earth, while the Hun, the higher soul, rises after death into the air, still active for a while, but then evaporated into ethereal space or into the common reservoir of life. The individuation process, next, which is the reorientating of the personality around the greater self rather than the more limited ego and its personality components, is central to Jungian psychotherapy. So much of the secret of the golden flower speaks of a similar process by which the centre of personality shifts from the earthly and mundane to the spiritually illumined individual. Alchemical references are abundant in the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower, and Jung is fascinated by these. For example, he quotes, If thou wouldst complete the diamond body, diligently heat the roots of consciousness and life. Kindle light in the blessed country, ever close at hand, and there hidden, let thy true self eternally dwell. In the way of creating the diamond body, about the equivalent to the alchemical gold, heating or a heightening of consciousness is required so that the spirit can be illumined. But not only consciousness, Jung insists, life itself, not just the spirit, life itself must be heightened. The union of these two, consciousness and life, produces conscious life. And finally, there are numerous metapsychological or metaphysical references to a philosophy that link the human being to the cosmos and are found in the text and indeed throughout Taoism. Synchronicity was one of these and became very important to Jung. He first deduced this idea from the famous Taoist text, the I Ching, which, once again, Richard Wilhelm translated, and for which Jung was to, once again, write an introduction. However, this is a large topic and will have to be left to a later podcast. So now we turn to the second part of this episode, which is Taoism in modern China. The origins of Taoism go back at least to the 4th century BCE. It was deeply influenced by the I Ching and proposes that human behaviours should be in accord with the alternating cycles of nature. The teachings of the Tao Te Ching, attributed to Lao Tzu, were foundational to the Taoist tradition, together with the later writings of Chuanzi, from whom the Yellow Emperor sought enlightenment. You may listen to the last part of Podcast 45 of Season 2 for a poem on this subject. Taoism had a profound influence on Chinese culture over millennia. Chinese alchemy, astrology, Buddhism, several martial arts, traditional Chinese medicine, feng shui and many styles of qi gong 
have been intertwined with Taoism throughout its history. Nevertheless, there is a varied and alternating history of persecution and accommodation of Taoism with the state across many centuries in China. While Taoism is concerned with matters of the spirit, it usually lacked effective central structure or clear doctrines and ethics. Some Taoists could be very apolitical, while others could be radical anarchists. Taoism is part of the ancient structure of Chinese religion, and to this day is enmeshed in folk religions, shamanism, festivals, folklore, ceremonies of all kinds, including exorcism. It has been the undercurrent of the more official Confucianism, which at one end of its spectrum, mixed with the nature religions, cosmology and metaphysics of ancient China, while at the other end of the spectrum, it stressed collective morals and obedience, worship of ancestors, respect for the family, social and conservative mores. There is a strong mystical current within Taoism, and the secret of the golden flower is certainly part of this. It can be also very syncretic, absorbing influences from Christianity, Buddhism and alchemy, the latter being of a special interest to Jung. After the 1949 revolution, China became a Marxist-Leninist state, which in essence detests religions and only tolerates them when useful to its purposes of control. At first, some religions were allowed a little freedom, although Tibet was annexed in 1950, and by 1959 the Dalai Lama and many clergy fled the country to India and other countries. The persecution and repression of Tibetan Buddhism continues to this day. During the Cultural Revolution, 1966-1976, initiated by Mao Zedong, formerly known in the West as Mao Tse-sung, there was an especially violent repression of all religions, including Taoism. After the catastrophic failure of this attempt at resurrecting and intensifying the revolution, China liberalised its economy, but not its massive Communist Party structure, which today has 90 million members, and within which all forms of religious practice are strictly prohibited. With the liberalisation of the economy, there was a lifting of repression in the 1980s and 1990s, and once again religions, including Taoism, were tolerated and began to grow. Of particular interest to us was the enormous growth of Falun Gong, a form of Qigong, which is a form of yoga, and which fits very closely with the instructions of the secret of the golden flower. It is therefore a yogic expression of Taoism. The same pathways are described for the circulation of the light in the secret of the golden flower as the circulation of breath energy in Qigong. Falun Gong is a variation of this. It is probably the nearest thing that exists in the modern world to the yoga practice, the movement of energy and light, that Richard Wilhelm describes in the opening pages of the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower. Wilhelm also mentions that in the history of this movement there was a religion of the light and many thousands were killed by the Manchus in the 19th century. 
there is clearly something very powerful about this meditation yoga practice that can so threaten the state. Well, history repeats itself. At first in the liberalisation period, certainly up to the end of the 20th century, Falun Gong was seen as an advantage to the state and had an extraordinary flowering with reports of up to 70 million followers. But as the movement grew, the Communist Party of China became critical, then suspicious, then hostile, and finally intensely persecutory. The range of repression has been very violent, with imprisonment, rapes, disappearances, tortures, killings and organ harvesting. Thus, this expression of Taoism has once again met violent repression by the state. For those who want an up-to-date report of these terrible events, you may read an online magazine called Bitter Winter, concerning religious liberty and human rights around the world, with a special focus on China. The Chinese Communist Party is officially atheist, then, but it recognises five religions, Buddhism, Catholicism, Taoism, Islam and Protestantism. All have to report and be monitored closely by the state authorities. Buddhism, with at least 180 million followers, has the largest official following of any religion in China. Despite the repression, there are a growing number of religious believers, including those who practice folk religions, and more than a dozen other banned faiths. Even Christianity has been growing quite strongly. Taoism has an official organisation at the top of its pyramid, which is supervised by the authorities. It only claims about 12 million people as members, but at the bottom of its pyramid, it fades off into folk religions and becomes very difficult to distinguish as a separate organisation. There are reports of many hundreds of millions engaging in Taoist practices and ceremonies and the like. It should be said that official Taoism currently, although under strict state scrutiny, has nowhere near the level of persecution, as far as I'm aware, as other religions, probably because it is among the smaller of the groups. It is also indigenous to China, and therefore not a foreign intrusion. China has, infamously, probably the largest population of religious prisoners in the world, and some groups face terrible levels of persecution. This includes the Uyghur Muslims, of which there are widely reported to be a million in internment camps. Let it be said that the intensity of repression and persecution is very varied from province to province in this enormous country. The future is unpredictable, of course, but the way events are shaping up in China does not look good for any religion or cults, including indigenous ones such as Taoism. Marxist-Leninism at root is violently opposed to them all and would like to shape human nature in the image of its totalitarian materialist philosophy. China is determined to be the dominant world power of the 21st century and is prepared to use whatever means at its disposal to achieve this. It is currently creating a surveillance state using the technologies of the 21st century over a population that is, as mentioned, over a sixth of the human race. The modern Chinese state is about as far away from Taoism 
as one can get. The Marxist-Leninists are opposed to the superstition of religions and, as I say, would gladly wipe them out. However, the Communist Party does not have everything its own way. Despite the levels of persecution, religious forces are growing in China, as they have done in the face of repression in the past. Whether they can continue to do so in the face of the enormous increase in the surveillance capacities of the state and the intensification of its repressive apparatus is the unpredictable future we have already mentioned. There have been astonishing examples in history of small religions achieving mighty reversals of policies of imperial systems. Christians were also a detested sect under Roman rule, yet they became the official religion of that empire. However, this was a total exception. Thousands of minor religions and cults have disappeared in the historical process. The often reported resurgence of religious practice in China, despite the persecution, needs some explanation, however. The obvious one is that modernisation, economic change, massive internal migration, extraordinary levels of urbanisation, fracturing of communities, a total concentration on economic progress, frightening levels of surveillance, an increasingly repressive state apparatus, the movement towards artificial intelligence and the domination of technology over everyday life have created a moral, spiritual and emotional vacuum in the lives of hundreds of millions of Chinese who are thoroughly cut off from their roots. That is, who exist in a state of extreme alienation. China is the centre of a massive experiment to change not only world political and economic power, the unique combination of a Marxist-Leninist state plus market economics plus modern technology has an underlying agenda of a radical change in human nature. Many fascists gasp in admiration at the experiment, just as they did in Germany under the Nazis or Russia under Stalin. For those of you who enjoy dystopian novels, a reading of George Orwell's 1984 is frighteningly predictive. Interestingly, it was published in 1949, the year of the Chinese Revolution. I suspect that Taoism, like Tibetan Buddhism, has more of a future outside of China than within it. Taoism has a large following in some surrounding countries, such as Taiwan. However, China is determined to take over Taiwan, regarding it as part of its territory. The United States, on the other hand, is committed to defending the freedom of Taiwan. Thus there is huge military tension in that area. This is one of the world's great military hotspots. It is very likely, in my view, that within this decade, China will militarily take over that country and America will withdraw its cover, thus further contributing to the decline of US global hegemony and the rise of China. As the Marxist-Leninist state extends its grip and augments its power, the future of religions in the East looks grim. While the actual religious and ceremonial practice of Taoism, to return to our subject, may decline, 
its influence lives on in numerous ways, not least in the West. It is simply too deep, subtle, flexible and wise to disappear entirely. It lives on in numerous yoga and meditation practices, such as Tai Chi, Qigong and Falun Gong. It has entered into Western depth psychology via Carl Jung and his school of analytical psychology. And, most amazingly of all, it is in accord with philosophical movements in modern physics and what might be called an alternative worldview, which is quite distinct from the materialist worldview that has dominated the West for centuries and now has large parts of the East in its grip. Also, there is something so special in its words and sayings that enter so deeply in the psyche that they are unforgettable. The Tao is that which exists through itself. It is the one essence. There is nothing above it. It is the one primal spirit.